0: Our passage today begins with an announcement from Jesus that His disciples didn't really want to hear, namely, His imminent death. Now, this is the third time Jesus spoke about His own death in the Gospel of Mark. And of all His teachings in the Gospel of Mark, this is the hardest one for the disciples to accept. They seem to have a mental block Whenever Jesus spoke about his own death, they couldn't handle it and they struggled to process it. They can even stray into uncharacteristic behavior as a result of this. So let me quickly review all three previous occasions when Jesus spoke of his death in order to explain. The first time Jesus spoke of his death was in chapter 8, verse 31 of Mark. And this was after Peter's great confession. And the Word of God tells us in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, that he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So the three key words are suffer, rejected, And kill I can imagine the disciples especially Peter saying this to himself when those words finally sang in so if I could take the trouble to paraphrase what I think Peter's thoughts are it will be something like this Lord you've got to be kidding right I mean this is our reward after leaving everything to follow you to conduct your funeral service now, that's a very poor return on investment, don't you think? And what about the people out there? Nobody wants to follow a dead Messiah. So how will your dying help our mission? Besides, if you truly are our Messiah, Savior, and God, how can you die? Now, it is thoughts like this that probably cause Peter to quickly pull Jesus aside And then, according to verse 32, Mark chapter 8, he began to rebuke him. Peter had only started, and he would have gone on and on in his rebuke had Jesus not cut him off, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You see, the disciples want Jesus to be crowned in glory, so that they can share in his victory. They want to join him in his exaltation, but not his humiliation. These are their human concerns that Jesus mentioned in verse 33. And so the bottom line is that it was a real shock to hear of Jesus' death. And that's why Peter rebuked Christ the first time he mentioned it, which is a most uncharacteristic behavior now the second time Jesus spoke of his own death was in chapter 9 verse 9 and this was when they descended the mountain soon after the transfiguration so the word of God says in chapter 9 verse 9 that Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen namely the transfiguration Until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The Gospel writer Mark then added this information about the disciples. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? This is taken from Mark chapter 9. Verses 10 and 11. Now here's my question. With the disciples still struggling with the unresolved issue of Jesus' death, why did they suddenly raise another question about Elijah's return? How is the Elijah question linked to the first? Well, to understand the background to their Elijah question, we must now look at the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And the word of God says in Malachi, See, I will send the great prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So here is the background to their problem. Now, they knew from the Old Testament that Elijah must return and bring a revival before the Messiah could come. And when the Messiah arrives, he is capable of bringing total destruction to their land, which means he must have great power and authority, right? Now, Elijah has finally appeared. They have just met him at the Transfiguration, probably an hour ago. And Jesus is their Messiah. Peter himself acknowledged that six days ago. So why then must Jesus keep talking about his own death when, according to Malachi, he should be exercising power and authority over Israel's destiny? And that's why they were so confused. What Jesus is saying doesn't seem to square with what they have read in Malachi chapter 4. Now, of course, we know that they have omitted other Old Testament passages, such as Isaiah 53, which portrays the Messiah as a suffering servant. Had they done this, they need not be in such agony. But as it is, they were too fixated on the messiah as an all-powerful conqueror and that's why they really struggled with the idea that jesus must be rejected and killed i hope it is beginning to make sense to you now so this leads us to our text for today mark chapter 9 verses 30 and 31 which is the third time jesus spoke about his own death so let's read the verses again before I command. So Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Then they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise again. My friends, the above is a turning point in Jesus' ministry because it signals the beginning of the end of his public ministry in Galilee. He had spent the last two and a half years of public ministry mostly in Galilee and he will soon travel south through Judea before riding on a donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and that will be a few months later. But for now, He's back to his base at Capernaum. And his main focus now is to have some private time to teach his disciples. And no prizes for guessing. Lesson number one was the subject of his coming death again. And watch what happens next in verse 32 to see the disciples' response. And what of God says, but they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. So as you can see, they were still struggling with the dying part. And according to Pastor John MacArthur, their main difficulty may well be the question of who will raise Jesus from the dead if he were to die? I mean, based on all that they have known, dead people don't rise on their own. They need someone to resurrect them. So who will raise Jesus if he is dead? So this seems to be the issue that gnaws at them to the extent they were actually filled with grief according to Matthew chapter 17. Meaning that they were in such deep pain over this issue. Luke chapter 9 verse 45 also says that it was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. In other words... God, in His mercy, did not reveal everything in order to protect them so that they, would, they won't be just crushed in spirit just like that. Someday in the future, they will be ready to fully embrace Jesus' death, but not now. So, my friends, this is the context of our passage in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Within just a short space of a week or two, Jesus had spoken three times to his disciples about his own death. It was too much for them to cope. So they were filled with grief and they were in deep pain as they tried to process it all. Now here's my question to you What usually happens when people are engulfed in heart wrenching pain? How would this affect their behavior? Well, in some cases that we have read in the newspapers, they can go berserk and suddenly attack other people. Or, they can erupt in a massive outburst of anger, as we have seen in the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States recently. Now, in the case of the disciples, they suppress their deep pain, but they also regress into another uncharacteristic behavior this time by arguing about who is the greatest among themselves. Can you imagine that? Jesus, their Lord, had just spoken about His death on the cross, which is the greatest humiliation of all. But they were arguing about their own self-exaltation. Now, this is wholly inappropriate, to say the least. I mean, if for some reason, You really think that you are the smartest, the most capable, the most talented person around. Take my advice. Just keep those thoughts privately to yourself. That way, nobody will take offense even if you are seriously deluded. But the moment you publicly broadcast that you are the best, the greatest, the most talented, it's such a real put-off. Because as human beings, we should all have the decency to know that such behavior is simply inappropriate. So what would you do if you were in Jesus' position, knowing that your disciples were arguing over who is the greatest? What would you say to them when you are teaching them in private? Well, our Lord Jesus issued three key lessons. So let me flesh them out one by one for the remaining of this sermon. He reminded them firstly that true greatness emerges out of childlike humility rather than acting high and mighty. Now we see this in verses 35 to 37. And the word of God says, Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Friends, the above are the values of radical discipleship embedded in the way of the cross they are radically different from the cultural expectations of Israelite society then. You see, whether we are in the 1st century Palestine or 21st century Singapore, human societies are mostly driven by pride. And because of this, nobody wants to be the very last and the servant of all, as Jesus had said. Everybody wants to be Lord and Master to be first and famous, to be powerful and prestigious. But Jesus thought otherwise. He knew that if there's one thing pride will do, it will surely destroy unity. Now, this is reflected in the way that disciples kept quiet in verse 34 when Jesus asked what was the topic of their discussion. Now, the word kept quiet in the Greek is Siopao, which means involuntary stillness. This is different from another word, Sige, which would imply a voluntary refusal to speak. Do you remember the time in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus was about to heal the man with a shriveled hand only for the Pharisees to object because it was a Sabbath day? Well, Jesus turned the table on the Pharisees by asking them in Mark chapter 3, verse 4, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But, the scripture says, but they remain silent. Now, that's the word, the same word in chapter 9, verse 34. Now, the point is that the Pharisees were so angry at the way that the tables were turned on them, that they became involuntarily mute. It is not that they can still speak but chose to keep quiet. That would have been the other word, sige. But they suddenly could not speak because they were now raging with anger inside. You know, they were lost for words. All of a sudden. The same idea is now used for the disciples in chapter 9 verse 34. So they were struck by involuntary mutinous due to the heated exchange and due to the raging anger inside as they were arguing over who is the greatest. So this is what pride does to a team. It destroys unity and it causes us to be very angry with our peers. Now that's not all. The parallel account in Luke chapter 9, verse 47 tells us That Jesus knew what they were thinking in their heart The word heart is in the singular Uh, That means they were all thinking with a singular heart on this Which means that everybody It's not just Peter or John or James alone Everybody wanted to be first And that's why they were arguing So this is what happens when we are driven by rivalry Instead of humility We become critical and judgmental. We demean others and push them down. We become self-centered and ugly because of our own jealousy and envy and insecurity. And the end result is that it destroys the last vestiges of unity and it causes us to fight each other in the ugliest way for the highest position. But Jesus would have none of this. And that's why He placed a little child in their midst. Think about this. A child is the metaphor of innocence and humility. He or she has no power or achievement. He or she is weak and vulnerable. He or she is wholly dependent and can be ignored at will. He or she has nothing to offer except a sweet smile. And yet, a child is loved precisely because of that. It is because of their simple humility and pure innocence that we adults end up serving them. Isn't this an amazing truth? They are so simple and humble, and yet we end up serving them and not the other way around. And that's why as a grandfather, I have a pet name for my one-year-old grandson. I nickname him Tiny Mighty. He is so tiny in that he cannot order us around and yet he's so mighty in that we all end up serving Him. But this is the point that Jesus wants to make. You have to be tiny in God's kingdom before you can ever hope to be mighty. That is how the way of the cross works. So do not be driven by pride and self-interest. Forget about jostling for power and position. Just be childlike in humility and in innocence. It is only as we serve in humility that God will see to our ascendancy in His good time. But there is more. Jesus tells us secondly that true greatness entreats us to celebrate rather than berate the success of others. We see this in chapter 9, verses 38 to 40, where the Word of God says, Teacher, John said, We saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Now here's the background to John's question. In verse 37, Jesus had reminded them that whoever welcomes one of these little children, meaning in the first instance, the child he had placed in their midst for illustrative purposes. But it can also refer as a secondary application to any fellow believer whom we are supposed to embrace in unity rather than embroil in rivalry. So Jesus is saying that whoever welcomes a fellow believer welcomes me, and also welcomes God the Father. And that's when John spoke about their encounter with an unnamed person that must have just happened. And he wasn't sure if he was as welcoming as Jesus expected. So he raised this issue up. You see, John and the others saw this unnamed person exorcising demons. Now, was the unnamed person a fellow believer? It would seem so, because he was exorcising in Jesus' name. So it looks like he's a fellow Christian. Secondly, was he successful in the exorcism? Obviously, yes. Why? Because Jesus even calls his exorcism a miracle. So what's the problem here? The problem is that the disciples had themselves tried to cast out demons earlier in a boy. A boy who was deaf and mute. Only to fail miserably. You can read about that in chapter 9, verses 14 to 21. Uh, 29, that was Pastor King High's sermon last week. And to add insult to injury, their failure then was witnessed by a large crowd. So this must be a huge embarrassment for them. And the teachers of the law also took this as an opportunity to argue with them, perhaps by accusing Jesus of being a fake messiah, since his own disciples could not cast out demons using his name. So given this background, I suspect that pride and jealousy must have come into play when the disciples stop this adain person from further exorcism. Their official reason is, he was not one of us, in verse 38. But the actual reason is probably their dented pride and their jealousy and the and the clue is actually found in what John himself had said because the phrase he was not one of us can literally be translated as he was not following us in the original Greek so that's the real problem it seems the unnamed person was successful but he was also too free-spirited and he seems unwilling to toe the line or follow the instructions given by the twelve that's why they wanted to stop him indeed I said su- I I suppose that uh, I imagine that the di- disciples may even have said something like this to Jesus as their justification so if I could paraphrase their thought this is probably what they may have said to Jesus Lord we've got to stop him right I mean, he's going around doing all those things using your name when he's not even one of us. And if we don't stop him, what happens if he starts raising funds using your name? What happens if he teaches a strange doctrine or gets into trouble? He may even say untrue things about you just to get off the hook. Now, I'm only using sanctified imagination here, of course. But my point is that it is so easy for anyone to berate others rather than celebrate their success. Why? Because of our own pride and jealousy. And so we've all got to be careful here uh, before we start criticizing other churches or organizations. So my friends, this is what happens when we are driven by pride and insecurity. We become exclusive. We create our own little club to keep others out. We become envious when they succeed and we did not. But Jesus would have none of this. He told his disciples not to hinder that person. Indeed, God's kingdom is so big that we can have unity in diversity. So there's no need to form our own exclusive club to shut others out. This is what greatness in the kingdom is about. Truly great leaders will make it a point Uh, to work together and celebrate rather than berate the success of others. Amen? But there's a third and final point that Jesus taught. Jesus told us thirdly that true greatness enjoins us to treat others rightly because Christ lives in them and they belong to him. Now, we have already seen this in verse 37, which says, Whoever welcomes one of these little children welcomes me. So, the implication is that Christ lives in them. So, how you treat them is how you treat God, since believers are inseparable from their God. Jesus then follows up with more reminders in verses 41 and 42. And it says, Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better off for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Now, the point is that Christ comes to, to us in each other. So we should not trample on others just to get to the top. We should not let pride and self-centeredness get the better of us until it destroys unity and brings out the ugliest in us as we push for our own success, and that at the expense of others. In fact, if we step on others, even upon the most insignificant one, Jesus warns us we are better off drowning in the most horrible way. Why? Because God himself is going to hold us accountable for how we treat other believers. That means we will not get away if we act unjustly to attack or destroy them. We are hitting at God himself if we are hitting at fellow Christians since they all belong to God. But if we treat them well, Jesus said, we will not lose our reward too because God sees all that we do, whether good or bad. My friends, this is a powerful incentive for believers to uphold justice, to promote harmony in all our relationships, be it in church or at workplaces and even in our own homes. But there is more because Jesus goes on to further say in verses 43 to 50, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maim than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Verse 45 If your foot causes you to stumble cut it off. It is better for you to enter life cripple than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. Verse 47 And if your eye causes you to stumble pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is not quenched. Verse 49, Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves, and be at peace with each other. Now, Jesus is not calling for the literal amputation of our hands and feet, or for the plucking out of our eyes. He is using what we call hyperbolic language to say that we have to deal severely and decisively with sin. So everything that you do, every thought that you are mulling over, if it is conceived in sin, and if it has the potential to harm others because of jealousy and rivalry, guess what? We must get rid of such impulses before they lead us to actually harm others. and That's the strong warning that we are given. Notice also that the verbs, to cut it off or to pluck it out, and those are given in the present tense, which means it is not a one-off action, but we got to keep dealing with them all through life. But, will the disciples take heed? Have they learned the lessons of childlike humility and the willingness to be tiny before they can be mighty in God's kingdom? My friends, it seems that there is still some way for them to go before they will finally get it. We know this because in the very next chapter, chapter 10, when Jesus spoke again of his death for the fourth time, James and John immediately asked for the honour of sitting on his right hand and his left hand when he's taken up in glory. And when the other disciples heard about what James and John had requested, how they were trying to steal a march on them, the scripture says they became indignant with James and John. So as you can see, they still have a long way to go before they embrace what Jesus said about being the servant of all. But I find it very comforting too, that our Lord Jesus in the next chapter was still very, very patient with them. He didn't lash out at them or give up on them. Instead, He repeated the same reminders again. So let me read for you what Jesus said. Whoever wants to become great must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that means that regardless of the fact that we may be slow to learn, the principles of servanthood and childlike humility will remain unchanged. Why? Because this is the way of the cross, the path that Jesus himself took. And so for each of us today in our churches, in 21st century Singapore, The faster we embrace this principle, the better it will be for each of us. So one last time, brothers and sisters, will you covenant to serve God and others with humility? And will you remember that tiny is mighty in God's kingdom? Let us pray. Father God, as we look at the struggles of the disciples, we are also looking at ourselves. We too are driven by pride, and we have trampled on others in ways that are unjust. Forgive us, Lord, for our sins of pride and self-centeredness. Grant us strength and conviction to serve you and to serve others with childlike humility. And when we do that, give us the satisfaction of knowing that we are only following the footsteps of our Savior and Master, who came to serve rather than be served and to also give his life as a ransom for many. We offer this simple prayer in our Lord Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Now as a response to the sermon this uh, morning, I've got two simple questions to help you in your reflection. The first question is this, what is my main takeaway from today's sermon? And the second question, is there something that I should do in order to nurture a deeper humility and a servant heart so please spend some moments to reflect over those questions